The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. Let us play with all our toys and let us think that we're big boys and let us make a lot of noise for women with the world. Let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com, on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. On Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Okay! Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. 
Good evening and welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Wednesday, June 7th, Thursday, June 8th, if you're on the East Coast or across the pond. Hope you had a great day, evening, night, wherever you are. We are live right here in the Great White North on top of the mountains of central British Columbia as we are here seven days a week for your listening entertainment. Let's welcome in everyone listening in on our terrestrial stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We are also live as well on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We're live on spacedoutradio.com, on Spreaker, KTLK, the Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Remember, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listeners. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. If you like our music, get your horns up. And rock with us to Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. You can follow us all over social media, starting on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Follow me on Instagram, Dave Scott, S-O-R. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, Player.fm, TalkStream Live, and Stitcher. And, of course, our website is SpacedOutRadio.com. And if you head over to Patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of SOR as well. Now, if you want to take part in this show, and tonight's going to be a great one, what I want you to do is I want you to sign into one of our chat rooms because we don't take callers around these parts. Very rarely we do. So go on our website. Click on Listen Live. You can listen in and chat in on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat room, or maybe you're one of the lucky ones who is a member of the SOR Space Travelers Club. Or if you're on Twitter right now, like Joe, Skeptic, Eric, what I want you to do is use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. You can connect with me live during the show as well. Now, if you head to our website for 5 bucks a month, you can become an SOR Space Traveler. And right now, go to our store. Pick yourself up a t-shirt, a poster, an SOR sticker. Or, if you're looking for a weekend getaway, how about a VIP pass to the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon right here in 108 Mile Ranch, British Columbia, going to be held at the Spruce Hills Resort and Spa September 29th to October 1st until July 31st. You can get 10% off your purchase of VIP passes. Now, if you head to our website again for 5 bucks a month, once again, you can become an SOR space traveler. You can read up on our news section, The Encounter Online, dealing with everything paranormal, courtesy of our editors, Eric Markham and Everett Themer. You can check out my latest blog there as well. And if you've had an experience you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report today. There's a disease out there that many of us oddly don't know of or have never heard of. 
But it's a tragic oddity that causes everything from weird fibers protruding through the skin to the feeling of bugs crawling through your body, causing itching so bad that people who suffer from it are actually scratching layers of their skin right off their bodies. Morgellons disease is so rare, often people have to diagnose themselves because their own doctors haven't even heard of this. I know this for a fact because my cousin is one of the top disease specialists in Canada. And up until I told him a year ago, he had never even heard of it. Morgellons is very poorly understood, and some physicians believe it's a, it to be a form of delusional parasitosis. The sores are the result of compulsive scratching, and the fibers, when analyzed, turn out to be from textiles. It doesn't make sense. Others believe it could be caused by the poisoning of the atmosphere from chemicals like what's sprayed out of chemtrail planes that's causing this issue. Almost like an allergic reaction people are having. Cindy Holman and Marianne Middleveen are here to clear up what Morgellons is all about. They are a part of the Charles E. Holman Morgellons Disease Foundation. For the next two hours, they are going to discuss with us what this disease is, how it's caused, whether or not at this time, since it's technically unrecognized, if it's curable. And I know we have listeners on this show who are suffering from Morgellons. Sidney and Marianne, welcome to Spaced Out Radio. Such a privilege for us to have both of you on this show tonight. How are you? I'm very well. Oh, we're doing Excellent. Yeah, we're doing well. That's that's Cindy over there, and I'm Marianne. Um, I guess we could start by telling people what Morgellons is and really what it isn't. Um, I'd like to start out what we consider the, the key diagnostic criterion, and that is the presence of these little fibers protruding from or projecting from the skin. And they're actually very, very small. So um, often a lesion will just look like a lesion until you get up close with a handheld microscope and then you can see that there's uh, the presence of unusual filaments uh, within these lesions. And I'd also like to clarify that the people don't actually scratch big holes in themselves. Um, these lesions are spontaneously appearing and... Um, they can occur in areas of the body where people can't reach them. Um, it is true, they're very, very itchy, so patients do tend to pick at them if they have them, but they can occur without picking. And I don't know if Cindy would like to care to elaborate, but um, I should mention that these little microscopic fibers uh, do often have an unusual coloration of blue or or red, but you wouldn't see big fibrous things jumping out of the skin or anything like that. This is um, something that's microscopic and um, is best seen with a handheld microscope. Cindy? Um, I just wanted to add that there are, um, well, that's the most... Um, that's the criteria for to make it more gelins is the, having these fibers in the skin. But also, more gelins patients experience um, flu-like symptoms and extreme fatigue and brain fog and um, 
migraine headaches, joint and muscle pains, and neuropathies, and and a whole array of neurological deficits as well. So they also have, generally they have quite a few systemic symptoms in addition to their skin symptoms. Yes, and those symptoms are um, what we call Lyme-like. They're the same sort of symptoms that somebody with Lyme disease might have. And indeed, there is an association between Lyme disease and Morgellons, which is what led me to um, being a researcher into this disorder. Also, I do think that it's a lot more common than people believe. First of all, some people have these lesions and don't realize it. Uh, Unless they've looked at it with a handheld microscope, they may not be aware that they have these little microscopic filaments. And um, a lot of people who do know that they have it are embarrassed by it because there's so much stigma associated with the condition that um, they, they don't want physicians to know or... Uh, their friends to know. So a lot of people hide with this disorder. What I would like to do here is I'd like to go back, Cindy, if you don't mind, when this disease was first discovered. Well, um, when you look back through the literature, (coughs) um, you know, we feel like Morgellons disease has likely been around for a very long time. You know, um, when you look back at the literature on delusions of parasitosis, which that's what the medical community has mistakenly diagnosed uh, Morgellons as, is delusions of parasitosis. But when you look at um, some of the literature by Ekbom from the 30s and 40s, you know, he described these same symptoms in his study subjects and um also noted that they had spirochetal infections. Some of his study subjects did. So we feel like Morgellons has probably been around, you know, we know Lyme disease has been around for millions of years. And, uh, you know, we don't really know, but we think that Morgellons disease probably has been around, you know, for a long, long time too, and just has been misdiagnosed. Yes, Cindy mentioned spirochetal infection. And I should elaborate a bit on that. Spirochetes are a type of bacterium, a bit bacteria that um, they are generally corkscrew shaped, and <coughs> perhaps the best known spirochetal infection of humans is syphilis, and and indeed that's what Ekbom described uh, many of his patients as having. And of course, we're talking back far enough that the diagnosis for syphilis wasn't perfect. So, you know, it's possible that they either had syphilis or some other spirochetal infection. We can't be sure, but, you know, obviously this disease or a similar condition, we don't know if those patients actually had the same um, filaments in their skin either, but uh, a condition like Morgellons was certainly described a long time ago and that it was associated with spirochetal infection. So since we don't know the history of it, and to many physicians out there, it still remains 
an undiagnosed disease. Why do you believe then, Marianne, that so many doctors and physicians out there and even scientists refuse to recognize whether or not this is an actual disease affecting people? Well, it's a really unfortunate, but a lot of the studies that have been done on Morgellons have had some serious flaws. So this Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did uh, a study and in which they, they did find a lot of these um, things such as fatigue and poor quality of life, and um, they mentioned that there was um, a cognitive deficit in these patients, and um, I could elaborate on, on that, but uh, the, the main thing that they didn't look for, they didn't look to see if these patients had filaments in the skin, and that was not their, their diagnostic criterion for, uh, for selecting study subjects. And then after they uh, chose them, they did look for they did look and collect fibers, but they just plucked superficial fibers off of the skin, and they turned out to be contaminant fibers that were textile. Now, in our studies, we have proceeded a little bit differently. We only study the fibers that are deeply embedded in, in skin, and uh, we've found that they are not textile. We found that they're actually uh, structural proteins keratin and collagen, which are normal proteins in the human body. And um, some of these blue filaments, uh, we found the blue coloration to be melanin, which is a normal pigment in in human uh, skin. But um, for some reason in these blue fibers, it comes out blue. We don't know why. And some of these blue filaments actually were very small microscopic hairs. They had cuticular scaling and they had the the morphology of hair. So uh, we know a little bit more about it, but um, we didn't make the same mistake plucking off these loose fibers, which can turn out to be environmental contaminants. Now, when you look at the disease, though, and I understand with what you're saying, it's still a shame, Cindy, that so many very smart physicians and scientists looking into this just absolutely refute it. They are saying this is a mental condition caused by the person's own psychosis and not an actual disease. Um, yes, it is a terrible shame, and unfortunately... Um a lot of suffering has gone on because of that. You know, patients have, you know, been diagnosed as delusional. They eventually lose the support of their family and friends, and they, uh, some of them have even lost their, ch- their custody of their children, and, you know, they lose hope, and um, they lose their jobs, they lose their homes, and, you know, it's just devastating. Some of them, you know, just give up on ever getting any help and have committed suicide. Um, it, it is a miserable condition, you know, just a miserable condition. And then to add insult to injury and have a dermatologist tell you that this is all in your head from, you know, across the room with never looking with a handheld scope. You know, they won't look at the evidence. So... 
Um, it's been a real tough job to try and and educate the medical community. Some of them are very much set in their ways, but we've made progress. You know, we say one doctor at a time, and, you know, there's a lot more doctors now treating more challenges and diagnosing it than there was back when I first, you know, became ill with this. So, um, you know, we just educate as much as we can and get research papers um, Marianne has published several research papers in the medical literature, which has been very helpful for patients, um, you know, helpful for the, them in getting some medical care. So One thing that you know, we've done is we've stuck strictly to uh, traditional science, and, you know, we've done controlled scientific experiments to show what it is and what it isn't, but... Um, one one big hurdle was the the study done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, when such a powerful institution goes and says that it's delusional. Although they did find that there were a lot of symptoms, and there were they did find there were clinical findings that they ignored and still said it was delusional. Um, when you look at the flaws in their study, they didn't use any direct detection methods to find uh, spirochetes. Um, they really, uh, they didn't look for the Lyme bacterium and they didn't look for related bacteria such as other Borrelia species. Um, they basically looked using, trying to detect levels of antibodies. So, the, the study had significant flaws in it that um, if I were to go into in too much detail would be extremely boring for the listeners, but um, that that's a huge hurdle. And then another hurdle is sometimes the patients themselves who are suffering from this disorder, they have very strange, unusual sensations, and they are looking for the cause of it or evidence, and sometimes if they don't have a scientific background, they believe they have a parasite. And then they'll go and tell the doctor, oh, I have this, I can feel worms, I have worms inside, I have parasites. Then the doctor will look and there's no evidence of parasites and there's no evidence of worms. So the doctor says, aha, you're delusional. And then many other patients, they will collect unusual skin findings, which you know, should be, it's, it's logical. And if the doctors actually looked at those skin findings and did some detailed studies on them, such as looking for Borrelia spirochetes in it, they would find that, that they could see the causative agent in, in that tissue. But instead, when a patient presents with, one, with a, a collection of unusual skin findings, the doctors call this either the matchbox sign or the sometimes they call it the baggy sign or the the cellophane sign or the evidence sign and if the the patient presents with this evidence that is an automatic um to them indication that they have delusions of parasitosis so uh, there's just a lot of ignorance in the medical community and Unfortunately, once um, dogma becomes accepted as the truth, it takes a long time for this to, to turn itself around. 
And in the history of medicine, this has happened before, um, such as the case with Helicobacter pylori causing uh, stomach ulcers. The the scientists that um, first reported this were ridiculed for decades. So, you know, we we as Cindy said, we try to educate one doctor at a time, and and we produce peer reviewed scientific literature and um, we gather evidence using scientific methodology and, and sticks adhere strictly to the science. What's it like when you take a doctor who has maybe never believed in this disease before, maybe even never heard of it, and then you show them the symptoms, you show them what Morgellons is all about, what reactions are you getting from physicians who you are convincing that this is real? Generally speaking, most of them, once they really sit and I show them the the results of cultures, I show them uh, immunostaining we've done where, you know, we can detect um, certain molecules that are present on in Borrelia species and um, is a very specific type of molecular stain. If I show them that and electron microscopy and all the DNA evidence that we have, generally speaking, they're pretty good. But there are occasional ones that no matter what evidence you pull to the table, they're not going to believe you. And they're going to attack you and ridicule you or try to. But usually that type of doctor uses Makes, ends up looking foolish themselves. So generally speaking, I'd say if I sit one-on-one with a doctor and talk calmly and go through the evidence, they, they usually come around. Do you find that more doctors are starting to open up about this being real rather than keeping closed mind? Are you winning more than you're losing is what I'm asking. It goes very slowly because there's hundreds and hundreds of doctors out there and and you can only sort of preach at one at a time, but it is getting more uh, acceptance. Um, We do speak at, I've spoken at a lot of conferences and that has helped a lot and um, certain, some universities are now studying it and they're duplicating a lot of the findings. So, So... um, you know, we we now have several. I should say that um, the 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 key finding that we consistently, uh, the key pathogen that we consistently find in Morgellons tissue, are different species of Borrelia, and um, as I mentioned, Borrelia burgdorferi is the causative agent of Lyme disease, but there are also other closely related Borrelia species, such as Borrelia hermsii, which causes relapsing fever. So we find, we're finding a lot of these Borrelia spirochetes in the tissue. So now there's around seven different laboratories that have repeated this. And in good science, if you produce your methodology and you you provide a detailed methodology, other scientists should be able to repeat your experiments and come to the same findings. And that's beginning to happen. So, you know, I I believe that we're doing pretty well, but it still isn't going to be, there, there's still going to be a lot of resistance out there. <laughs> 
couple I have a couple questions from our audience here if you don't mind. This mm-hmm. one coming from the Revolution Radio chat room from a gentleman named Stardust Man. He's asking of those fibers that you find, do they have color? And if they have color, are there more than one color in one fiber? And if each fiber is one color, are there many fibers with different colors at the same time? Okay, I can probably answer that. Sometimes people feel that, that I mostly, in when it's embedded in tissue, I've seen red and I've seen blue and I've seen white. And I've seen some black ones. And they generally tend to have only one color associated with them. Now, some people will bring uh, these fuzzballs or things that they, they think have come from their skin, and they're actually only superficially attached. And lesions are very sticky. Um, they have exudate on them, and uh, contaminating fibers can stick to it. So a lot of times these different colored fibers turn out not to be associated with the the disease. These turn out to be contaminating textile fibers. So, you know, really differentiating them, um, in order to study the correct fiber, it has to be uh, the fibers deeply embedded in skin tissue. All right, let's get to another question here. This one mm-hmm. comes from Twitter at hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Wisteria is saying, 10 years ago on a different show, people who had Morgellons had sick pet birds as well. They thought they may have got it from some sort of bird illness. Would you agree with this in the study that you have done? Um, I would say not. Um, there, some people do report that their pets have symptoms, and... You know, you'd have to go on a case-by-case basis and see if there's any uh, legitimacy to it. So, you know, I haven't examined those birds. I don't know what they have, but birds do get sick and people do get sick. It's probably, my guess is it's probably unrelated unless they have both been exposed at some point to the same pathogen, um, which a caged house bird is unlikely to be in contact with ticks or or some um, mechanism for getting infected. Let's get to another one. Um, Oh, go ahead, please. Um, I do hear from a lot of people who uh, feel that they have contracted this from bird mites. And um, Marianne can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think that mites are known to carry the relapsing fever that they can uh, transmit those spirochetes. So it might be possible in some instances that that is how their infection was transmitted rather than, you know, the usual tick bite, um, you know, the way that, that the Borrelia burgdorferi is most often transmitted from the bite of a tick. But um, yeah. I read that might can... Um, some people will say they've had head lice, and then the head lice goes away, and then the Morgellons symptoms linger. It could so, also be that exposing exposure to a mite can aggravate a pre-existing condition. But um, yeah, uh, usually the Borrelia hermsii is normally transmitted by a, a tick vector too. Um, I do think, though, that 
many arthropods can carry Borrelia. It's just that um, they are thought not to be competent vectors, meaning that they can be infected with the bacterium but not thought to transmit it. So um, I think that we probably haven't done enough studies to ascertain whether all these you know, that the level of competency for some of these vectors. Um, there's a lot in science we just don't know. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things we know about, or we think we know about Borrelia that in the future will turn out not to be true. So, um, you know, I, I'd say there's a little leeway there. And I hate to say something is absolute when... Um, there's been a lack of studies on the topic. Let's get to Lynn's and, question here. Oh, oh, go ahead, please. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just going to say one more thing is that patients tend to um, try and figure out, you know, what caused this. And that at the time they develop the symptoms, they'll begin to try and associate that with whatever they were doing or, you know, and in the time leading up to that. When Actually, oftentimes that's not, you know, how they contracted it. It's just, um, you know, it's something that they've had for years, and then, you know, they've had the the uh, Borrelia infection for years, and then maybe something traumatic happens, their immune system takes a hit, and then all their symptoms develop. But it's not always the thing that that the patient will associate it with when they, you know, try to find, well, how did I get that, you know, so... It's, it's uh, usually something they've had for years. Well, let's... Yes, and there's no way of telling how long they've had the infection. I've known people that have had Lyme disease for years, and then they don't have more gelons, and then after a traumatic event or something that happens in their life, then they develop the, the more gelon symptoms. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we there's a lot we don't know. And, but Cindy's right. A lot of times... Um, for example, if you have creepy, crawling, and unusual sensations and these weird lesions, and then you see a fruit fly around your lesion, you might think that that fruit fly has come from your lesion when, in fact, it hasn't. So patients, they're perplexed, and they're looking for answers. And so often they, they come to the wrong conclusion. Well, this leads to Lynn's question. How are people contracting this disease, Marianne? Well, uh, you know, pr uh, the, the key pathogens that we're finding in there, we found Borrelia, uh, primarily Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia hermesii. So those are the two most frequent, but we've also found in one case Borrelia miyamotoi and then Borrelia garinii. So um, all of those are tick-borne pathogens. So probably most people get it from a tick bite. Well, you know what? In my area where there is a ton of mule deer and white-tailed deer, you know, we have to be careful because there's ticks everywhere. There are literally mm -hmm. ticks everywhere in this area. So do you believe then, like you said, that this is coming from ticks or wild animals that is being passed through, maybe ticks or mosquitoes or other types of insects transmuting it to humans when they leech onto a human? Well, 
I think it's primarily through ticks because those those are are the arthropods that are you know have been shown to be competent vectors, and you know we don't know enough about uh, other arthropods to say for sure that they aren't. But in, in the studies that have been done, you know they haven't been shown to be competent vectors. So principally, I, I would say it's through through ticks and um, that has anybody ever done any study on ticks to see if it is carrying the genome that would cause this well what what's happening to these patients is they get uh, an infection of borrelia we've also found an, a, a few other tick-borne pathogens in the tissue of, of patients so we've also found Bartonella has has been reported. Um, Dr. Randy Weimar uh, reported this, and also Igenics Laboratory in California. Um, we've also found Trepanema denticola, which is another type of spirochete, um, which is um, causes human periodontal disease. So. Uh, you know, maybe some of these other spirochetes can cause it too. Um, we haven't determined that yet. And if so, you know, if Treponema denticola might be um, causing it, then then that does not have to be vector transmitted. Um, uh, I don't know um, what else you wanted me to no, that's, that's fine, elaborate Debbie. on. That's fine. Yeah. Let's let's get to a question here, and Cindy, we'll we'll ask you this one. This one comes from Shar. The fibers don't move on their own, do they? Because we have had people who have more gelins who listen to this show say that they've seen their fibers moving. Are they moving, or is that part of the the brain trauma that is caused by this disease? Well. Um... Uh, the fibers do move, you know, I've, I've had fibers that move. They don't tend to move for very long, but they do have like some jerky type movements, but, um, you know, and, and, uh, the average patient's going to say, well, that means it's alive. No, it, it doesn't. You know, there are lots of different types of movement and, um, what we think is this is, you know, possibly, uh, kinetic type mechanical movement. You know, these filaments are formed in really tight confines, you know, where there's hardly any space. They're an unusual light as a feather, literally, uh, consistency. And so as they unfurl from where they have formed, where they shouldn't be forming, you know, they there are some jerky movements that happen for a little while. Yes. You know, I don't see that all the time, but... Um, Lots of patients have reported that, and, um, you know, you have to be very, very careful, though, when looking at it, because anywhere you're going to be, unless you're in a controlled area, there's going to be some breeze, too. So lots of patients, you know, don't realize there's a draft, you know, no matter where you are, you know, even if you turn the fan off, there's a little draft, you know, even with your breath. So lots mm -hmm. of patients don't realize that, too, and um, so you have to be and really careful, but they do... Mm -hmm. Yes, it's microscopic. These are microscopic yes. fibers, and so it, it takes very little to make them move. But I've seen 
a lot of videotapes that people have sent me, and these are the the movement in there is nothing like the movement of a, a of a living organism. You know that it's completely different, right. and small little tiny microscopic fibers. Um, there's a lot of, well, when you look at something in liquid in the microscope, it can move because molecules are bouncing around it, and we call that browning motion. And Mm -hmm. the things can look like they're zipping around, but it's just caused by molecules bouncing off of each other. And when you have such tiny, tiny, tiny fibers, things will make them move, but it's not the same as the, the, the movement that a living organism will demonstrate that if it is modal. Mr. Rowe in the Revolution Radio chat room says he has researched this and has found that some lab analysis find that they are quorum sensing. What is your opinion on that? (laughs) No, no, because the fibers are are themselves not a living organism. So, uh, you know, there is quorum sensing in in, bacteria but those are yeah. those are living organisms the the fibers are actually just human structural proteins and that are formed because of a, a peculiar response to a pathogen and um, what happens the presence of the pathogen alters gene expression and all our cells have you know are encoded to produce these proteins and when um, genes are turned on and off at the wrong time, you know, this can lead to the, the formation of these unusual fibers. Um, there's uh, other conditions that, um, for example, uh, HIV patients uh, who have Bar Epstein virus, um, they can have these little hairy filamentous growths on their tongue. So, you know, this is known to occur, uh, this sort of response can occur in, in, as a result of a pathogenic infection. Let's get to another question from our audience because we love including them in this show. This one comes from the sisters. Is the disease then contagious? Do the fibers jump over to another living creature and embed themselves? Absolutely not. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, that the want, fibers um, are not infectious themselves. Is that you know the the infection is are you know microscopic bacteria that are a lot smaller. So you know in order to see those bacteria, we need um, a much more powerful microscope. And and they're inside the tissue. It's not just. Uh, floating around on a fiber that's going to jump from one person to the other. So, no, these these this fibers are not infectious. Right, and this particular bacteria, Borrelia, is very sensitive to the presence of oxygen. And um, so there's no way that anything is going to come off, you know, jump off of one person and infect the next. It just doesn't happen. Um, Morgellons is not... Um, transmitted by casual contact. You know, it's just um, 
the, the infectious part of it is internal in, in Morgellons. So it's infectious disease, but not contagious. A lot of people get confused about those two words. And, um, you know, infectious diseases sometimes are contagious, probably the majority, but there are a lot that aren't con- contagious, too. Contagious means transmitted from person to person, and Morgellons is not transmitted that way. Let's go I, to, I mean, I go would ahead. caution people, if you did have a, an open lesion, you know, if, if your friend had an open wound and you put your wound up against their wound, you know, there, there would be a possibility, but it's not really, Morgellons is a skin condition associated with this, with, you know, Borrelia infection or spiroketal infection, so it is not the the infection itself. It's it's a a type of symptom. Um, so yes. some studies have found that about six percent of uh, Lyme patients have Morgellons, and we don't know why some people get it and others don't. But you know we suspect that there's a genetic component. And there, there's other secondary factors involved on why some people would develop Morgellons and some wouldn't. So secondary factors could be things like um, women tend to get it more than men, and this could do with the fact that maybe their sex hormones or their immune status or, um, you know, women carry babies So our immune system is a little bit different because we're designed to carry a foreign body and not reject it. So, you know, in general, I think there's a lot we don't know. We still haven't elucidated all the different uh, secondary factors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are you going to transmit more gelons person to person? Um, No, because we don't even know what the secondary factors are. Um, there are some spiroketal infections that are contagious person to person. So, um, of course, syphilis, which requires intimate contact. Um, and there's yaws, which uh, is a treponemal infection, and that can be transmitted person to person. But, you know, that's in wet tropical conditions in general. And um, so... I wouldn't say that it is never, but it's highly unlikely. Let's go over to Twitter and hashtag Spaced Out Radio for a question from John. He says, why is Lyme disease mainly confined to colder climates? We have plenty of ticks here in the south. And is the contraction of Morgellons confined to any certain climate? Um, Morgellons is reported all over, and... Um, they're the, the states where they tend to be reported more frequently are Florida, Texas, and uh, California. Now, we don't know if that's because there's more awareness of it or, um, you know, uh, I, I see a lot of it here in Canada, but um, so it does happen all over, and part of it, is because the reporting of the, the the disease isn't consistent. It's not a reportable disease, so there's a lot of cases out there that we don't hear about. But 
Um, Borrelia hermsii is more common in the southern U.S. So a lot of those cases that you're seeing in the southern U.S. could be because of Borrelia hermsii. The other thing is somebody could have, there's a lot of snowbirds that may have contracted it up in New York or Massachusetts, and then they go and retire to Florida, and, and that's where they first get their symptoms. Also, um, about, you know, the, the California, Texas, and Florida, that was, those states were noted to have the most reports in the early days, say like 10, 12 years ago. And we think that that is um, basically due to the fact that those are the places where awareness was being raised and news segments were featuring mm -hmm. this. And doctors were present, treating patients in those states. And... Um, but then um, Dr. Wymore at Oklahoma State University, he has a registry system, you know, where patients can um, fill out a form, you know, just to be able to count the number of cases and the demographics. And his, um, the breakdown of some of his data was that uh, most of the patients were in places like Oregon and Arizona and and Oklahoma, but that would have been probably awareness from Dr. Wymore's lab. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of shocking. But then those those states, um, Arizona, Nevada, you know, and Oregon, Utah, those states do have relapsing fever spirochetes a lot too, as well as uh, the Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia hermsii. So really, we hear from people all over. I don't I know that there's any hear. real. Yeah, and because I'm here in Canada, I hear about Canadians with it all the time. You know, they, I'm constantly being contacted by Canadians with this illness. Well, so I'm, it, it I'm aware of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a question from Lynn here. Do we have a cure? Um, you know, do we have a cure for Lyme disease? That, that is the question. So um, certainly antibiotics help people with it, but I want to emphasize that if a person thinks that they have more Jalans, they need to see somebody who understands and treats Lyme disease, and they need to get properly tested and properly diagnosed with, with Lyme or Borrelia hermsii or whatever pathogen they have. Um, so they, they do need to seek medical help. And some people, that the condition of delusions of parasitosis is, is a real condition. Some people really do have that disease. So um, when people suspect they have an illness, they need to have a differential diagnosis done, and they have to make sure that that's what they really have. But Lyme disease is very, very hard to treat, especially if you've had it a long time. And there's no no easy way of getting rid of it. Are there different stages of this disease? Like a lot of diseases start off, you know, they're very minuscule, and then they grow and grow and grow. I'm thinking cancer. I'm thinking HIV leading to AIDS. Is this kind of the exact same way, that it starts off very minuscule, and then by the end of it, it's kind of affecting everything like, say, Parkinson's would? Uh, you um, can see yeah. various 
situations, can't you, Cindy? I mean, some people get a very mild case and it never progresses very much, or some people have a, a tick bite, a bullseye rash, and then boom, they have it. So, and, and you know, some people may have had the infection for years and, and then they, some trauma brings it out. Um, I would say there's no set pattern. Um, what Dr. Stricker, uh, Dr. Stricker has done, and um, and Melissa Fessler, a nurse practitioner, have um, categorized Morgellons into stages. You know, much like you know, with the way breast cancer is, stage one, stage two, and um, with the Morgellons, I think this is in one of their research papers, maybe the most recent that one. That's in one of mine um, with Dr. Stricker. And, yes. Uh, yeah. We've published that um, in the BMC Dermatology paper and then also the International um, Journal of General Medicine. So uh, you can find that in there. Um, stage one would be like with just localized lesions, just in one area of the body. And then, you know, stage two is like more than one area is affected. And stage three, you know, it just goes on and on, you know, with stage four being like, you know, your whole body is covered with it. But it does seem, um, you know, I would say for sure that people, you know, the earlier you can catch, the earlier you can get treatment, the better success you're going to have, you know, with, mm-hmm. with trying to treat this. So here's the classification. There's early localized in which lesions or fibers present for less than three months and are localized in one area of the body. So, for example, the head, trunk, or extremities. Then there's early disseminated where the lesions and fibers are present for less than three months and involve more than one area of the body. Then there's late localized and late disseminated. But um, I did see a case where a young girl had it, and she developed these um, an acute case where she was just covered with uh, lesions. Unfortunately, her GP was familiar with this, and he put her on antibiotics right away, and she was better within a month. So, um, yes, the earlier you get it treated, the better. So what are we using to treat it? And, oh, we, and, and just so you know, we have about ni- 90 seconds here. We can conter- continue that uh, into the next hour as well. Well, primarily antibiotic therapies. So, and, and you know, you, you, you have to see a doctor familiar with treating Borreliosis, and, and um, it's very complicated. You also have to identify if the patient has any other tick-borne illnesses or co-infections that can complicate the, the, the course of your disease and um, any other underlying conditions, like if you have an immune deficiency or, you know, every person is very different. So treatment is really, really complicated, and it, it's important to see someone who really understands that. Um, the Charles E. Holman Foundation, Cindy can tell you about this, uh, has a referral, patient referral. They can refer you to somebody in your area. That is excellent. 
That is excellent. Ladies, I'm going to get you to hold on here because we're going to be going to a break in about 20 to 30 seconds here. And we are talking tonight with Cindy Holman and Marianne Middleveen. They are part of the Charles E. Holman Morgellons, or Morgellons, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. We'll go with Soft G because they're going with the Soft G. Morgellons Disease Foundation. This is an interesting disease. We're still discovering what it is, what it could be, how it's affecting people on a daily basis. We're going to get more into the disease and more of your questions on the second hour of Spaced Out Radio right after this. Coming September 29th to October 1st, the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon. Hi, this is Dave Scott. The event will be held at the Spruce Hill Spawn Resort in 108 Mile Ranch, British Columbia. Come join us for an amazing weekend of speakers talking all things paranormal, UFOs, ghosts, aliens, Sasquatch, intuitiveness. Listen to great speakers like Miriam Delicato, Samantha Mowat, and the crypto guru, Ronald Murphy. Get your VIP passes by going to spacedoutradio.com and clicking on the Paracon banner. Come to BC, where the paranormal is waiting for you. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy on your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the Sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? 
Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit and expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I... Vincent Zunza and my super sleuth partner Alexandra Sullivan track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up, enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to hour number two of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night on the program, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern Time, Bill Hauser is back. Yes, we are going to be doing the live Ghost Box sessions. So get your pens and papers ready. We're going to have three hours of live Ghost Box. I know you enjoyed it every time Bill has come on. Well, he is back again. 
We're going to do it all again tomorrow night at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, and on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We are also live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you the valued listener head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today bill cardwell has set the password for tonight in the sor space travelers club oporopolist oporopolist is your password make sure you use it wisely space travelers as bill sets a password each and every night right here on the mighty SOR. Now, if you want to follow us during the show on social media, you could do so on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to hang out with us there as well. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott SOR. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, Player.fm, TalkStream Live, and Stitcher, our website is spacedoutradio.com where we have a plethora of features for you including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for five bucks a month you can visit our Spaced Out Radio store pick up a t-shirt poster that I will autograph you can also pick up some stickers and if you're looking for a weekend getaway how about the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon happening September 29th to October 1st this year in beautiful 108-mile ranch, British Columbia at the Spruce Hills Resort and Spa. VIP tickets now on sale. And you're getting a 10% discount on those until July 31st. So I want to make sure that all of you who are listening take the opportunity to come on up and hang out with us for a great weekend of Paranormal. While on our website, also check out the Encounter Online, a great news section that we got going with Everett Themer and Eric Markham, who will join us in hour number three tonight. It's going to be a good show indeed. Tonight, we are talking Morgellons disease. Joining us, Cindy Holman, as she is part of the Charles E. Holman Morgellons Disease Foundation, and Marianne Middleveen. Ladies, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Marianne, oh, I, I made a, I made yes. a, I made a mistake. I said you were part of the uh, Charles E. Holman Morgellons Disease Foundation. You are not a part of that. No, I'm not. Um, the Charles E. Holman Foundation has um, funded and partially funded some of my research, but I'm a microbiologist and I um, and independent from the Charles E. Holman Foundation. All right. I want to get back to some audience questions here because our audience tonight in the chat rooms is very much into this topic tonight. BTO is asking, earlier it was mentioned that Morgellons is a natural bacterium that is millions of years old. He respectfully disagrees. So his question is, is it possible that the current Morgellons disease be an earthly or government or extraterrestrial artificial technological weaponry? No, absolutely oh. not. I mean, all those sort of things are kind of pseudoscientific explanations, and there's absolutely no evidence to support them. And sometimes people propose that um, Morgellons is caused by nanites or chemtrails or um, 
uh, I've heard all sorts of things and, and people are adamant about it. But when you sit down and say, okay, show me some evidence, they have none. They can't produce any evidence showing it. And, um, you know, if they did, uh, I welcome, you know, I welcome them to try to find some evidence and, and to produce something that's plausible. But it, it has never happened. What about you, Cindy? You've <laughs> not seen um, one concrete thing. Not. And uh, when, you know, sometimes all those theories, you know, and the lack of any evidence to support them are actual harmful to the, you know, the whole crusade to try and get recognition for this as a real condition. Because, um, you know, when patients start going to their doctors with, ideas like that in their head, then they're, you know, they're 100% for sure going to get the delusional stamp. So, um, you know, people can, there's theories out there, but there's, like Marianne said, there's absolutely no evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. It is very harmful because um, not only that, but we work really hard to produce good scientific studies and we use standardized methods. We do lots of positive and negative controls. We blind our samples. We, we um, go through ethics approval. We publish in peer-reviewed uh, medical journals. So we're working hard to, to do standardized um, and, and good scientific studies. So. Uh, when people propose all of this, it paints all of the research with the, the same feather, and um, you know it, it it makes it hard for legitimate science to get accepted by medical doctors when they go on the internet and then they see chemtrails and um, uh, extraterrestrial bacteria and these these sort of outlandish things. Um, then they they think well all those people that believe it's not delusional they're all kooks and and you know we we get painted with that same brush too so you know we're we're trying to educate people that that this is not the case and if you think you have evidence you you bring out your evidence and you show it prove it. I think this is an interesting question at hashtag Spaced Out Radio by Canadian Joe. And he is asking, do you believe then that there may be a connection with Morgellons and the GMOs that are in our food? I've seen no, no. evidence for that. I thought there would have been something there. I really do. No. Huh. No, we've never seen any convincing evidence of that. So if people, again, you know, if you, a theory is a theory until you have evidence that proves it otherwise. But, um, you know, there's lots of interesting theories out there or hypotheses. And, you know, what, what you do, that's how science starts. You start with a hypothesis and um, then you conduct controlled scientific studies and experiments to prove your hypothesis right or wrong and then you move from there and um, things cannot be taken as fact and until you've proved or disproved your hypothesis and you know that's what we 
we started with the assumption we knew that there was an association um, of, of uh, Lyme disease that a lot of these patients with Morgellons had Lyme. So, you know, and, and we looked at a similar animal model, uh, uh, this disease in cattle where they had spiroketal infection. It, it's, a, it's caused by a treponine, and um, we could see the spirochetes in that tissue. So uh, we started with that hypothesis, and then we went on to either prove or disprove our hypothesis, and we found spirochetes, and then we genetically identified them doing uh, controlled DNA studies and um, looking for different antigens, which are surface molecules on, on the organism. And we looked at the fibers under, we used electron microscopy, we used standardized histological stains, we used um, microspectroscopy and other techniques to identify what these fibers were. So, you know, a lot of serious science went into this. It's just not some willy-nilly uh, hypothesis that we came up with and then didn't do anything to prove or disprove. John. Also, I'd like to just add Please. something to that. Um, you know, as we were talking about, Morgellons has been around for a long time. In fact, I know and have known over the years several patients who've had Morgellons for 60 years or more themselves. Some patients have told us that their parent, that their, uh, one of their parents had it, you know, and so this is, you know, as far as blaming it on GMOs, um, the evidence just, there is no evidence for that. You know, I don't know if, I don't think Monsanto was around, you know, 60 years ago, and then there is evidence that it's been around much longer than that, so. Exactly, um, um, egg bomb studies. It doesn't make sense. Right, egg bombs in the 30s and 40s. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and there's even evidence, you know, it's mentioned in some British literature in the 1920s. So, um, you know, uh, to try and connect it with a genetically modified foods, I think, you know, that's that's a pretty far leap. And there just hasn't been any evidence to suggest that. We do know that Borrelia infection's been around um, for a long time. Uh, museum specimens of um, mice uh, have had detectable Borrelia in in those um, in their tissues, and also the Iceman was found to have Borrelia infection. And um, we certainly know that Treponema infection has been around a long time, and some patients with treponema infection may also have um, Morgellon symptoms. And there's and also um, Borrelia has been found in amber that's like billions of years old. So uh, it's something that's just been around for a very long time. It's certain, you know, it's certain that during the 70s, um, Lyme disease and... and um, notable Lyme disease came um, more to light. More people seem to be getting it. And, you know, whether uh, there's been some change in virulence or, or something like that or whether the transmission has, uh, whether ticks, the, the arthropod vectors have become more 
widely distributed or the infection has spread within the vector population. You know, these are, are things that, you know, could be factors. And the, the Lyme disease population, it's growing by leaps and bounds. The CDC mm-hmm. estimates that over 300,000 people are diagnosed with Lyme disease each year, and that's, um, that's the ones that are diagnosed and reported, you know, and most of the cases go undiagnosed. So Morgellons population is growing by leaps and bounds um, the same. You know, we're hearing from more and more people all the time. We hear from some, usually around, you know, anywhere from five or more people every day, you know, reporting symptoms of this, you know, so. Um, well, and as physicians it, become more aware of it and actually start looking for it in their patients, they may find there's a doctor here in Calgary who's found it in 10 patients of his that um, they didn't know they had the condition. He found mm-hmm. it on them. Let's get to more audience questions here. John at hashtag Spaced Out Radio is asking, are there any foods that you know of that either alleviate or exacerbate this disease? Yes. Um, um, sugar definitely exacerbates this, and, um, and carbohydrates, you know, which turn to sugar, exacerbate the, the symptoms of Morgellons uh, and Lyme disease, you know, those just regular Lyme disease patients who don't have Morgellons also generally follow a low-sugar, low-carb diet. And there are lots of diets that are recommended by various specialists in Lyme disease, but um, the common denominators usually, you know, stay away from sugar and carbohydrates. And some people develop a sensitivity to gluten, and there's a gluten in quite a few things. So most Morgellons patients usually find themselves needing to stay on a pretty strict diet, you know, as well as um, treatment with antibiotics for the infection. And um, diet can be really helpful too. So, Well, in any infection, if you have, uh, you, the healthier you eat, the healthier your immune system is going to be. So, you know, in general, eating um uh, fruits, vegetables, high-quality protein, and, and a, a carbo- carbohydrates in moderation. And, um, you know, just eating a healthy, sensible diet is going to help people because uh, the healthier you eat, the healthier your immune system is going to be. Oh, now you're making me feel guilty because for the first time in months, I wolfed <laughs> down a Big Mac today. See, there is no everything in moderation. Yes, I know. That's the first time in month. I think that's pretty good. Yes, well, there is no McDonald's in my town. My town is so small it doesn't have a McDonald's, and I hate it for it because I like a good Big Mac every now and again. Let's. (laughs) Well, you know, it doesn't hurt you every now and again. But everybody's having said that everybody's different, and so you know, some some patients have more tolerance for. Or eating different foods than others too. So yes, my mouth is very tolerant when it comes to food. I'm not going to lie. BTO is asking, what are the homeopathic or natural remedies to help cure or alleviate symptoms of Morgellons? 
Cindy and I are probably oh. the wrong people to ask that because neither one of us is is all that big into naturopathy. But there there are naturopaths that treat more gelins and lime. So, um, I don't know. Would you like to add anything to that, Cindy? Um, a lot of people choose to use integrative medicine, which integrates some natural supplements that are known to, um, you know, be antibacterial and along with antibiotics. But um, actually what I hear from is most people, you know, do better on antibiotics alone or antibiotics and supplements. But it's, um, you know, just the natural treatments. Sometimes it takes a lot longer to get well, and some people don't do very good on those at all. Some people are able to manage it, you know, with just supplements, but um, it just depends on the case. You know, each each case is so unique, and um, so when something that helps one person may not necessarily help the next mm-hmm. one. So, you know, it's just kind of a trial and error thing to, you know, find what combination of medicine, whether that's natural um, agents or whether that's, you know, medicinal or antibiotics or whatever, you know, it's, each person is just so unique. It's hard to say, but, um, it's good to find a doctor or a naturopath. That's a good fit for you. So, you know, somebody that would be a good physician for me because I'm, I, I really into evidence-based medicine. And so I, being a, my microbiologist, I like to see the proof of everything. So unless there's been a controlled study on it, you know, I find it less appealing. So I'm going to want a different kind of doctor than somebody who really likes integrative medicine. And I I think that, you know, it's a very personal choice and, and people have to make that kind of decision for themselves. Does cannabis help? I mean, we see what the reaction to people who suffer from diseases like Parkinson's or glaucoma have mm-hmm. when they use cannabis. Is cannabis a healthy alternative to help alleviate some of these symptoms? I would say yes. I've seen patients do a lot better when they've been using medicinal cannabis. And I mean, of course, here in Canada, that's that's available for people. So... I, I've seen some patients that um, do quite well taking that. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting... I, yeah, oh, I, oh, go ahead, Cindy. I'm sorry. You concur with oh, that. I hear positive things from uh, patients who use it for you know pain control and uh, lots of symptomatic relief, and it does seem to be helpful from what I've heard. Here's a good question from Shar. And I'm glad she brought this up because I I hadn't thought about this going into this show. But because it's such a new disease, if we could call that in scientific terms, it's not covered in the United States for lab testing with... You know, there's no money for insurance going into this, if if I understand this. Is it the same in Canada? Because I know with our health care program here... You know, we're covered for the majority of things or diseases or tests, but I'm not sure if a disease like Morgellons would be covered under the medical 
services plan here? In here in Canada, it's difficult because um, our guidelines for Lyme disease are very, very restrictive. And we just, um, there was, um, they just made a national framework for Lyme disease, and they they followed the same traditional, extremely restrictive pathway that they they had had before. But um, in general, you've got to, if you think you have it, you need to find out what pathogens you have, and then uh, that that are causing your your condition, and then. Um, get treated accordingly. So you're going to have to find a, a doctor that understands Lyme disease. And in Canada, unfortunately, um, there's very few doctors that can do this. And because our guidelines are are so restrictive, um, a lot of doctors that treat Lyme or dare to treat Lyme have come under review and some have lost their medical licenses. So you're you're um, in the states. This happens too, but it tends to be on a state by state basis. And in Canada, we're covered all by one umbrella by Health Canada. So in the states, there's there's some uh, states that are um, more liberal or more uh, have a broader um, approach to treating Lyme disease than others. So. For example, in California, doctors that prescribe long-term antibiotics, they, they are protected. In Canada, I, if you think you have it, um, you could, if, if you trust your doctor and you have a good rapport with your doctor, you could discuss it with them. But um, it's very, very difficult and it's a very unfortunate situation. Heather is asking, how close is that link between Lyme disease and Morgellons chemistry-wise? Well, about 6% in, in an Australian study and then in another study in California, um, they found that about 6% of the Lyme patients in, in their practices had Morgellons when they actually went and looked for it. And uh, again, some of these patients weren't even aware that they had it until, you know, they knew they had lesions and then until uh, the doctors looked at, at the lesions for these little filaments, they didn't know they had it. But um, it's not just Lyme disease that it's associated with. It's also associated with other Borrelial infections. And um, we have found Treponema denticola, as I mentioned, but... In the patients where we found treponema denticola, those patients also had Borrelia infection. So uh, predominantly it seems to be different Borrelia, but not all of, you know, uh, some of these, some of the Borrelia are not um, considered to cause Lyme disease, like some of the relapsing fever strains such as Borrelia hermsii you know, seem to be responsible for these symptoms in some patients. Let's move over to the SOR Space Travelers Club, where Gail is asking, the skin is a minimal part of the excretory system. Is it possible fibers inside the body could be expelled in this manner? Mm. Well, we know where the fibers are forming. Um, 
in uh, one of Marianne's papers that characterizes the filaments, it's shown how they are forming directly from the epithelial skin cells. So, um, you know, they're forming right there in epithelial cells. These cells are located all over the body, though. They, um, they're line the digestive tract. They can be in the mucous membranes, uh, lining and, um, you know, and as well as in the skin. So that's where the fibers are forming and that's where they eventually come out through the skin. You know, they, they, well, they grow in a sort of hair-like manner. And in fact, some of the, we found some of the blue, blue filaments are really small uh, blue hairs. And um, so they grow in that sort of manner. So, you know, they, they, and when I look in the microscope, sometimes you can sort of see a tube forming, like the cells, you can see that uh, there are nuclei from the surrounding, when you look at the surrounding skin cells, you'll see nuclei. And then you'll see how the nuclei go up into this little uh, tube that that is forming, um, and so it's kind of a hair-like extrusion or um, growth. And some of them do form around uh, follicular bulbs and and inside hair follicles too. So it's not. It's not really your body expelling them. Your body's actually growing them. Where are they growing from? From primarily skin cells, but like Cindy said, epithelial cells. Is there a certain part of the body? Because I'll be honest, I'm a journalist, I'm not a scientist, and definitely don't know much about the body except open my mouth, feed, and that's pretty much it. But and I have bad eyes. But the the idea behind this is, is it maybe in the stomach that it's starting? Is it in the digestive system? Is it in the heart, lungs? Whereabouts are we seeing this? Primarily. Skin, most skin. Mm-hmm. Just like, um, you know, your body forms hair on the skin. So, you know, most of these, most of these hair-like things are, are in your skin. But, you know, some... There are epithelial cells, like in the vagina, for example. So some women have reported filaments and vaginal filaments. And one of our studies subjects had vaginal filaments, and and the pathologist had actually noted that she had keratin filament, vaginal filaments. He identified them as as keratin. I read her pathology report. So, um, yeah, they can... They can form in other areas, but um, areas where there are epithelial cells. Let's get to more questions here. This one comes from Michael. Are the fibers cellulose? Absolutely not, and we've tested for that. Um, We used a stain called calcofluor white, and um, that stain will stain cellulose. And um, that was found to be negative in those filaments that were deeply embedded in tissue. The CDC uh, said that they were cellulose, but the CDC study, um, they 
had admitted that they probably had introduced cellulose fiber when they extracted the samples from the patient. So um, you can even read it in in their paper. Um, uh, It's called... If you just Google search unexplained dermopathy, you'll find a link to that paper. And in it, they mentioned that um, these fibers could have been introduced while they were sampling. So um, although they found cellulose, cellulose, they were looking at uh, loose contaminating fibers. I did not find any cellulose. All right, let's get to another question here. Eric is asking, and he is our resident spaced-out radio scientist here. He is asking, is it a form of calcification or some other way that the body tries to encapsulate the organism, recoding it for keratin? No. Um, what it is is it's, it's probably uh, altered gene expression, just the presence of the the organism can... Um, alter gene expression, but no, it's not. I've seen no evidence that is walling off the infection. And when you look, you can find Borrelia all through the tissue. When when we stain specifically for that organism, or for for Borrelia species, you can see just hundreds and hundreds of them in the tissue, and they can be. Um, but the fibers aren't walling them off or anything. No. It's not like a granuloma, like a granuloma would be, where um, you know granulomatous tissue can form around um, pathogens and sort of wall things off. It's it's just not like that at all. Follow up question from Eric: Is there any evidence to suggest that the organisms is using pili or? Pili, I apologize, P-I-L-I, to spread mm-hmm. their genome? No, no. Um, that's just not how they, they reproduce. Um, they're, they're bacteria, so they use binary fission. Let's move on to another question here. Shara is asking... To her, it sounds like something causing the skin cells to mutate. Would that be a correct observation? Well, mutation implies that the genetic code has been changed. And I would say, no, it's not really a mutation. It's just that your, your cells that in the nucleus, your cells encode all these different um, proteins. Your, your your genes do, and um, what happens if if there is different mechanisms in which your body normally turns on and off uh, genes so that you produce the right protein at the right time, and um, it, it's just more of a mal a, a malfunction of gene expression, so. Uh, the wrong things are being turned on at the wrong time. Michael is asking, why are scientists and doctors having such a hard time identifying the disease and denying its existence, Cindy? Um, why are doctors having a hard time? Mm-hmm. 
Well, they've been taught throughout medical school, you know, that patients who come in reporting these symptoms, um, you know, are generally delusional. So, you know, once that's been ingrained into people's heads, it's, um, as Marianne mentioned, you know, about um, helicobacter causing um, gastric ulcers. You know, it took 30 years for, for um, the scientist, the physician who who was working on that to convince the medical field that that was true. And they, you know, they just continued their old ways for 30 years and ridiculed him. So, um, and the, you know, medical change happens very, very slowly. And, you know, we hope that with each generation of new doctors, it'll be more and more recognized. And as the science gets, gets out there, it'll be more recognized. But, you know, we also have doctors out there who are, you know, just so dead set against it that they won't even look. And some of those are very powerful, and they continue to publish papers, you know, saying that Morgellons patients, you know, are all delusional. And, um, you know, so there's a strong opposition to this. So it yeah. just takes a long time, you know. Once doctors have this, you know, ingrained in them, then it's very hard to change that. But... Part of the problem, yeah. Part of the problem is is Lyme disease itself is a very controversial illness. So there's two general um, schools of thought on the disease, on Lyme disease, and um, one is that held by the Infectious Disease Society of America, and in general, the CDC. And they have very uh, a restrictive case definition and um, restrictive guidelines. And um, in their guidelines, they rely almost exclusively on tests that look for the presence of antibodies rather than direct detection methods, such as uh, looking for the DNA of the organism or culturing or uh, other methodologies like that. Um, and so the testing is really, really bad. And as well, in order to be considered a positive by CDC standards, you have to have a very strong antibody response. So even if you're producing antibodies to it, if you're not doing it in sufficient quantities and to enough different proteins, then they'll say, nope, you don't have it. So, for example, you have to react um, on a certain type of antibody, IgG. You have to ha react to 5 out of 10 proteins. So if your body's only producing uh, antibodies to 4, you know, you're out of luck. You don't have it according to them. And that's because it's an antibody test. So doctors are trained to, to trust these tests, that these tests are absolutely 100% um, sensitive at detecting the infection. And so um, when they test and then the patient comes out negative, they'll say, you see, you don't have Lyme disease. And then as well, those tests are not going to pick up Borrelia hermsii and some of the other closely related um, spirochetes. So we have a huge, huge problem where the guidelines are just too restrictive and um, uh, sadly, when when uh, there's a polarized um, topic in medicine, uh, it's the patients that lose out. 
Daryl, who is one of our valued listeners around here, she's in New York and she suffers from Morgellons. She is asking, do you believe then that Morgellons alters DNA? Mm, I think I answered that before. It it doesn't... Uh, I have not seen evidence of it altering DNA, but I will say that... Um, you know, whenever you have infection or you have stress um, to tissues or you can have uh, higher incidence rates of, of cancers if you have chronic problems. So I have seen um, some more Jones patients that have had cancers, but, you know, when you talk about altering DNA, you're, you're most you're talking about mutations, and mutations lead to cancer. So not not directly. I think it alters gene expression. So um, in Lehman's term, it's, it's just sort of the, the wrong switch is turned on and off at the, you know, at the wrong time. It's just a, a malfunction of when genes turn on and off. Not, not really an alteration of the DNA. When I had Marsha Pavlis on this show about a year and a half ago, she was stating that a lot of patients for Morgellons were having to self-diagnose themselves. I'm wondering if that is still the case for many people out there to know whether or not they have it. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Most patients um, have to diagnose themselves, you know, and um, they contact our foundation and, you know, we tell them that they'll need to get a handheld scope and look at their skin, you know, in order to know if they have it because most physicians don't, don't have a scope in their office and if they did, they're, a lot of them are unwilling to use it. So, um Yes, patients are still, for the most part, self-diagnosing. Mm-hmm. Isn't that dangerous? And then getting it. Isn't that dangerous, though, to self-diagnose? Well, then you yes. you have to see it a physician be. who will test you for the pathogens associated with this. Right. You know, so you're not really diagnosing yourself with an infection or anything else. You're just ascertaining whether you have these skin filaments and and the right symptoms. It's just like, um, uh, let's say I had pain in my upper right quadrant, and I thought, gee, what do I have? And I looked on Google and found out that's associated with um, problems with the liver. Then I'd go to the doctor and say, you know, I think I have problems with my liver. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You know, so um, that that's just the sort of thing we're recommending. We're recommending that people look to see if they have the right symptoms for this and then to seek appropriate medical help. Now, Cindy, I didn't know previous to this show airing that you are someone who suffers from Morgellons as well. You mentioned it in the first hour, and it kind of caught me off guard. Oh, yes. Um, I've had uh, a really horrible case of Morgellons. Um, my symptoms became unbearable around 2003, 2004, and 
I don't know if you've looked at uh, a lot of the publications, you'll see those legs that are covered with lesions. Those are my legs. And and you'll probably see in other publications a person's back that's scarred with lesions all over it. That's my back as well. So, I've yeah, I've suffered for over a decade, you know, with Morgellons symptoms. And I am very, very grateful to be much better now, although I do still have a few lesions. Um, but nothing compared to what I was, you know, for many, many years. So if we can go back in time a little bit, just so our audience can learn, when did you start noticing the symptoms of Morgellons? And did you know at that time what Morgellons was? Um, no, I didn't know what Morgellons was, and I didn't know that I had fibers. I know that uh, 2003, I began to develop skin lesions and... Um, a friend called me and said, watch the news tonight. They're going to show a disease that looks like what you've got. Well, um, I watched that program, and it was about Morgellons disease. So then we knew to, to get a microscope and to look, and and you can clearly see the filaments in my skin. So um, that's how, you know, my journey began. And But I got on, once I knew what I had and got tested you know for these bacteria I got on treatment right away and it took I don't know it, it took several years for me to even begin to get better it was a long horrible horrible time of my life and um, and I did begin to get better and then in 2007 I lost my husband and at that point I stopped treatment again and I slowly drifted back into that you know horrible stage that just completely intolerable, covered with lesions. And so then again in 2012, I uh, drug myself back to the Lyme doctor and, and got on treatment again. And now it's been um, almost five years and I'm almost lesion-free. Good for you. Good for you. I would like yeah. you, if you don't mind, Cindy, to take us through what you go through on a daily basis with this. Because for the majority of us who are just learning about this dreadful disease, we don't know what it's like. And I, w I would love it if you educated us. Um, well, uh, what I go through right now is nothing compared to what I went through at its worst. But um, this disease, uh, this condition, Morgellons, and my the lesions in my skin were so painful. The most painful thing I've ever dealt with in my life, and um, and the itching is just insatiable itching, you know. And you can't find anything that relieves it. It's uh, it's I, you know, I I struggle to find the words that can describe the misery that this condition, you know, with especially when it's full-blown and you have it all over you. It's just, you can't sleep, you can't do anything, you can't lay on these things. They become hypersensitive, you know, um, uh, these lesions do. In certain stages, they're just like all of the nerves become inflamed, you know, where you can't even stand to touch anything. And there were times when I couldn't even stand to put clothes on. I would just wrap in a sheet, you know, and just a T-shirt on my back was just so painful. And even trying to you know, just regular activities. Well, the fatigue is overwhelming, but, you know, just trying to, you know, take a shower or take a bath, that was so painful. I remember screaming in the shower, you know, just 
it was just so painful for the water to hit those lesions. Um, you know, it affects every aspect of your life. You become disfigured, you know, you've got these horrible sores, you know, and people start, you know, wondering what's wrong with you. And, um, you know, you kind of find out, you know, who your friends are and everything because, um, you know, lots of them don't want to, don't want to hear all of this, you know, but, um, and, you know, especially after a doctor has told you, oh, you know, this is all in your head. You're doing this to yourselves. I was accused of self-mutilation at one point. And, um, you know, just those kind of things. When you're so sick and so desperate and, you know, it's, I, there was, I, buckets of tears were shed throughout, you know, the whole decade, just buckets of tears. I just. You know, and the thing, the uncertainty. You know, back then when I got it, we knew really nothing. We didn't know where these fibers were coming from. We didn't know what they were composed of, you know. And um, that uncertainty, I think, is just, you know, really damaging because you just live, you know, knowing that no doctor is going to help you and um, nobody understands this disease. And just the fear and the pain and the misery together, it almost got the best of me. And I'm a tough person and no stranger to pain. So, you know, it has gotten the best of some, some, you know, of my dear friends, you know, that I've made throughout this struggle. But, um, yeah, it's really hard to put in words, you know, how painful and horrible and disfiguring, you know, I have scars that I'll, you know, horrible scars that will be there for the rest of my life. You know, and lots of other patients, too, you know, have horrible, horrible scars and disfigurement. You know, and that's, you know, if you get the lesions cleared up, you're still left with the scars, you know, and and you still have to treat the Lyme disease. You know, I still have brain fog and I still have fatigue and it's not as bad as it was, you know, but um, you just sort of take one day at a time and just hope that you keep getting better. Looking at your pictures, Cindy, that are posted on the website for the Charles E. Holman Mortellens Disease Foundation, and if you want to check out the website, it's thecehf.org. Thecehf.org if you want to check it out. And looking at the photos that you had taken of your own, to me, you know, and, I, and I'm a very untrained eye, but some of those photos almost look comparable to what I've seen with a mild form of flesh-eating disease. Has there ever been any correlation between the two? Well, um, no, flesh, there have Yeah, and flesh-eating disease is caused by a different, you know, um, it's a, uh, usually caused by a species of strep, so strep pyogenes, um, and, you know, these are Borrelia. I would say it's more like the the lesions are probably most similar to lesions like people with tertiary syphilis would have. I mean, uh, treponema pallidum is a spirochete, and um, people get... All it's um, they're they're ulcer ulcerative and uh, corrosive type looking things, but generally speaking, um, syphilis lesions aren't as painful. But um, no, it's it's not the same as flesh eating disease. 
Now, back to you for a second, Cindy. Craig has a question for you. And he is asking, what have you used to cure it until now? And what have you tried that didn't work? Um, gosh, it's so hard to say. When it, as I threw everything but the kitchen sink at this. Um, in the beginning, before we knew what it was about, I did um, uh, antifungals even. I thought, well, it possibly could be fungal in origin and you know, so I did the maximum dose of antifungals for well over the maximum length of time you should do antifungals while monitoring my blood work and everything. But um, I would say antifungals don't work. Um, um, antibiotics, you know, is, you know, what has helped me. And I've been on various combinations. Um, you know, first of all, you would need to find out what pathogens you're treating. And so, you know, for for most for every study subject so far, Borrelia has been the, the one that's present in all of the study subjects. So um, there's lots of different kinds of antibiotic combinations you can use for that. I also have Bartonella, which is another tick-borne infection, and it's an intracellular. It's not a spirochete, but... Um, so I take a separate antibiotic for that. So it all depends, you know, on what co-infections you have. And, and you know, a Lyme doctor will usually switch your antibiotic combinations off, you know, to different things. And, you know, there's no cookie-cutter thing because, as I said before, each case is so unique. You have a different – each person has a different level of immune system and, um, you know, a different genetic background. I mean, each – each person responds differently to different medications. So, but antibiotics and all different kinds of combinations is what has helped me. Antimicrobials, you know, targeted against the Bartonella and the Borrelia. I should mention, too, that Cindy told me she had tried um, large doses of antiparasitic medication that did not help her. Some patients do report yes. benefit of, of that, but, you know, we we believe that if people feel benefits from antiparasitic medication, it may be because of um, off-label effects, um, such as maybe an anti-inflammatory effect. Or it, uh, some, some of these antiparasitics can uh, stimulate the immune response. But um, Cindy herself did not feel any uh, benefit from taking antiparasitic medications. We only have about three minutes left with you, actually about two minutes now. I want to just take the time to say thank you to both of you for coming on this show, Cindy and Marianne. This has been a, a very, very educational two hours, a very fast two hours for you spending your time with us to educate us here. So I want to say thank you on behalf of our listeners. Well, thank you for well, thank having. you for having us. Well, I'd like to do this again, if you wouldn't mind, because I think there is, you know, as, you know, more testing happens and as people start to learn for it more, hopefully the next time we talk, there will be some sort of, of, you know, seriousness in research and development trying to figure out what this actually is and what's causing it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, Cindy, if people need to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Um, they can contact us through the website. Um, there's uh, a little button that just says contact us, and that's the way patients can contact us with questions or um, you know, looking for uh, doctors. We can give you links where you can you know, find doctors you know, hopefully close to your area. Some people still have to travel out of state, you know, for doctors, and much of it's not covered by insurance. But um, once in a while, you know, there are a few doctors that you will find that that will bill insurance and some insurance companies will pay. So, you know, don't lose hope and contact us if we can be of any help to you. All right. The the website, once again, is the CCHF. Dot org the cc i pardon me no no i got it here the c e h f dot org the c e h f dot org that stands for the charles e holman morgellons disease foundation make sure you check it out it's right there even google it you'll find it just google cindy holman marianne and cindy thank you for being on spaced out radio coming up in hour number three here the preacher eric markham everett themer e squared Coming up on Spaced Out Radio, hour number three. We'll see where this night takes us because we never know where it goes when us three get together. You're listening to the Mighty SOR. We'll talk to you right after this. Looking for a great weekend getaway this fall? Hi there, this is Dave Scott. Come on up to the heart of British Columbia for the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon, being held at the Spruce Hills Spa and Resort in 108 Mile Ranch, British Columbia. Speakers from all over North America are coming to discuss Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, and intuitiveness for the three-day event, September 29th to October 1st. For more information, go to spacedoutradio.com and click on the Caribou Paracon banner and book your tickets today. Come to BC, where the paranormal is waiting for you. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with U4COP. On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries, so tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. 
I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top quality paranormal stories from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter online only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio, or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box, the iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box, the spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? 
Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome to the final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Great to have you with us. Tomorrow night on the program, get your pen and paper ready. We are going to do a live Ghost Box session for three hours with Ghost Box expert Bill Hauser. It's always a fun night with the audience. I hope you tune in because some of the things we hear are just phenomenal. Whether you're a believer it or not, I would honestly recommend you checking us out tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us on a nightly basis. We are also live on the WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of The Walking Dead. Thank you so much for being with us as well. We love being your nighttime entertainment. We are also live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Oporopolist. Oporopolist is your password for tonight. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the mighty SOR. Now, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with us live during the show as well. Much appreciate that when you do that. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. Our website is spacedoutradio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month. You could go to our store, pick up a t-shirt, a sticker, an autographed poster. Soon, Carl the Alien, candles. And if you're looking for a weekend getaway, you could also buy your VIP tickets 10% off until July 31st for the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon happening in 108 Mile Ranch, British Columbia, the weekend of September 29th to October 1st at the Spruce Hills Spa and Resort. We would love to see you there. we got a great weekend planned, three days of events, two ghost hunts, one UFO watch, three live Spaced Out Radio shows going on. It's going to be a great weekend for you to get away and hang out with some para peeps and meet and greet 
us as well because we want to meet you. Tonight, we bring in, for the final hour, from The Encounter Online, Everett Themer, Eric Markham. Gentlemen, my team, how are we? Hey, doing great. Good. How are, how are you guys? Good. What, do you, what were you laughing at there when I had you on mute there? Were you laughing? Who? I think it was you. I wasn't laughing. And I had you on mute, so you wouldn't have heard me if I was. Weird. 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 Maybe it was Preacher's beard again. Preacher's it beard. Was baby. It was your cat. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It was your it was your cat. Gentlemen, it's it's been a while since we've actually been on the air together. And you know, we've had an interesting few weeks coming up here in regards to the show and expansion and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. You know, one of the topics that I get excited about, and and we'll get into the Morgallons thing here momentarily, Preacher, because I'm very interested in, in learning what you think that is. But tomorrow night we got the Ghost Box session with Bill Hauser, who's going to go three hours with us with live Ghost Box sessions. And we, yes, audience, we will be taking your phone calls as well, or not your phone calls, but your questions as well during the show to try and connect. And usually we get some really good answers. Everett, you're, you're kind of the skeptical one of the three of us. Are you buying into the whole ghost box aspect yet? Yeah, I am. I, I think it's worthy of some further study and, and serious study. I've Heard a lot of interesting things using them. When they first came out, I really thought, well, this is just another gadget that people are going to buy and throw away in a year or two. But I've spent some time with Bill doing some private ghost box sessions. And some of the things that have come through, you just can't explain. There there have been instances where, you know, the word poltergeist will come across as a response to a question and you're not often going to hear the word poltergeist on the radio. So I think there is something to them. And in a weird way, it kind of pains me to say that, but I've taken some of his files and dropped them down to analog and run them through my studio where I can just play with them and not over, not over-process them, but bring them back down to what they are and then just listen to them at different speeds with different EQ settings. And every now and then, I hear something that makes sense. And I'm familiar enough with bleed-over and crossover that it doesn't fit with that, and I can hear the difference. So as much as sometimes it pains me to say it, yeah, I think they are definitely worth some sort of further study. And I, I, I'm pretty sure Eric will disagree with me a little bit, but I mean, that's where I stand. What do you think, Preacher? I'm still on the fence. I think I never really hear what on them, what they say, they, you know, what everybody else is hearing. And, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to throw them out the window completely because I don't get it because there's a lot of things I don't get, but I'm, I almost think if it's almost like if you're in a place where they're doing cold reading, you want an answer. So you, you hear it. I, I'm with, I'm with Everett in that. I think they, they need, they do need to be studied further. 
I'll tell you, I thought it was a lot of audio pareidolia at the beginning, the first couple shows that we did with Bill. I, I wanted to try something different because I hadn't heard a lot of shows actually doing this. So, you know, every now and again we experiment with topics and we give it a few months and we, we gauge the audience reaction in regards to, you know, whether or not a certain topic works. And then the third time we did it, maybe it was the second, it was either the second or the third time with Bill, it was like halfway through the show when I became thoroughly convinced. Now, I make no bones about it. My real name is not Dave Scott. My first real na- my real name is Dave, but Scott is my middle name. I don't use my last name. My last name is long, Ukrainian, you'll butcher it. It's, it's you know, it, it keeps me a little bit private and allows me to have a little bit more of a private life if I don't use my real last name, which is something I actually enjoy is my privacy. My last name is 11 letters long. It is long, it is ugly, you got silent letters thrown in all over the place, okay, and it's very Ukrainian. And one night on the show, while Bill was, you know, about halfway through the show, I clearly heard my last name. Clearly. Plain as day. And that's where I actually took a step back. And I said, holy cow, I think there's something to this. And it was funny, Eric, going to what you just said about how you don't hear anything. After that moment when I heard my real last name, I actually started hearing more on there. I started understanding what Bill was listening for. And I was hearing words. And then I started writing down the words. And then I'm noticing the same words that I am hearing, other people are hearing as well. But the one thing that the show does do is it gives us a great forum to kind of bond together as listeners, as a host, and for Bill himself to hear the responses that people get. Because what we've done since then is we've really made it an audience participation type show. And Bill comes on every couple of months to do this with us when his work schedule allows. But it allows us to... to um, you know, bond together to see if we're all hearing the exact same thing. So I do believe there's something to it. I do agree that there has to be more study because for a lot of people, and Preacher, I'm sure you'll agree with this, there's a lot of words being strewn about on the ghost box that it's really hard to pick out what is answering towards the question and what is just radio signal cutting in and out very quickly? Yeah, I'm going to, a lot of times I listen to that show just through my regular computer speakers. Tomorrow night, I'm going to have my headphones on because I know there is a difference in the audio quality. So maybe tomorrow night I'll hear and I might even throw a question out there and see if, you know, it might be... It might be a case, like you said, once you heard something that you identified with, it tuned your mind to hear it on a more regular basis. That might be what I need. I need to get that one unequivocal, oh my God, that's, you know, that epiphany 
response, and then I'll be, you know, my filters will be adjusted in such a way that I can hear it. Well, you know, I think with, with Bill coming on, you had mentioned pareidolia before. One of the things that I think Bill really does to help, in a way, dispel that is when we're doing this, you get so many people who are hearing the same words. If it was pareidolia, for the most part, they would be hearing words that they would expect or that they're thinking about or somehow affects or is involved in their life. But you will get 15 people that hear the same word, which doesn't really necessarily apply to anything that they should be thinking about or listening for. So when you get 15 people across the country or across the world hearing the same thing, I think that it helps a little bit dispel the idea of pareidolia. Well, I'm thinking because, okay, it's scanning through the frequencies, but wherever you are, wherever the ghost box is located, the frequencies it's scanning are the same, say it goes through 10 channels. So the pool of words is random, or you're in a situation where you're picking up three or four syndicated stations that are all transmitting the same words at the same time. Maybe it's just that the pool of words is such that 15 people all hear the same combination. Well, I'll tell you one of the questions I'm going to ask tomorrow night is about Willie, who is the ghost who I have to make amends with down at the local museum because I have another ghost hunt going on on Saturday night where I'll take people in and I'll tour them around and see what kind of paranormal activity we get during the ghost walk for a couple of hours. And if you didn't tune in earlier this week when I mentioned that, I'll fill you in on the story. Willie is a ghost who doesn't like the tour. And he's very upset with me. In fact, he, he the last ghost hunt we did just a couple of weeks ago, he actually invaded the body of James Vincent from Canadian Paranormal Investigations and James was absolutely wanting to throttle knock me. And if you saw James, I mean, height-wise, you know, he's about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, but he's probably about 2'10", two, 2'20", two, of solid muscle. And I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I can take a punch back from the hockey days, but I think he would have hurt me. I really do think he would have hurt me. And he actually had to walk out of the building because he was feeling so violent towards me, and I had no clue this was going on. So through Skeeter Russell that you may know from the shift on the weekends, on Spaced Out Weekend, her and I actually chatted with Willie. And Willie and I are... Uh, Willie's problem is he doesn't like the tour, he doesn't like the stupid, you know, paranormal-type questions. Can you please knock on the wall and tell us you're here? And can you please make a sound or, or whatever? He doesn't like that. He doesn't like the, the equipment, the, the cameras, the photography, the recording equipment. He just wants to be left alone in his part of what we call the post house, where he is upstairs and in the closet. So we made that deal. And part of that deal is that he is going to, you know, him and I are going to share a beer. We're going to share a beer. And I'm bringing two bottles of beer, one for him, one for me. 
And according to Skeeter, I have to crack the beer open, but leave the bottle cap on top. And Willie will take the cap off. Because he has the ability to do so. And that will be our defining moment on if we've made peace. But I've also promised him that his closet will not be photographed. There, are, People can enter that room. He has given people permission to enter that room, but there is no photography, no equipment allowed in that room, and he doesn't want people touching the walls or the desk that's in there. So I'm going to oblige by that. And I'm curious to see if Willie is actually going to come through the ghost box tomorrow night just to see if he has any thing to say leading up to that or confirmation that he's looking for a beer i think that would be kind of cool that would be really really cool skeeter wellhouse not skeeter russell skeeter wellhouse i apologize i made a boo thank you gail for catching that it happens that's what happens when you get on a roll of, of saying something you know, when you get on a roll. Now, so, you, can't, you can't bring any electronic equipment in there, can you? No. Digital recorder, no. camera? No, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely told him that when him and I have that conversation, that experience will be between him and me. Now, I will say this for safety precaution. I will have uh, either Skeeter or Elizabeth April, who was on the air last night, on the phone with me, maybe even Elizabeth Anglin, on the phone with uh, outside. And I will have uh, some saging uh, material from, from, or some smudging material from sage and Palo Santo wood to make sure that, you know, there are no attachments and so on and so forth. But the big thing is to go in there and try and make peace to make sure that, you know, we can get back on the same page. Because there's another ghost in that building, and her name is Mary. She loves the tour. According to Skeeter, Mary loves the people. She loves to show off. She loves to, you know, play with meters and be in pictures and knock on walls, so on and so forth. The attention, Willie doesn't like the attention. But he understands deep down that the ghost tours are a good way for the museum being a non-profit organization to raise money. And if and if you see our museum, if you're coming up, and guys, you'll see it, you're both coming up for the Caribou Paracon that we are putting on September 29th to October 1st, you'll see the museum. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. You know, it's well-kept, and but that takes finances and resources and, and people volunteering their time. So... We cap the tour at about 20 people, but if 25 show up, we're going to make it happen. It's it's not a problem. But one of the things that we plan on doing is, you know, we plan on during the ghost hunt, or pardon me, during the Paracon is having a ghost hunt there as well. And we definitely want to make sure that any of the spirits are not affected, you know, because in the end, that's their home. That's their home, and we got to make sure that they are taken care of as well and not bothered. So that's why on Saturday night, and I'll report on it Monday just to let you guys know how it goes, but on Saturday night, I'm, I'm nervous. I, I can honestly tell you I'm a little nervous going into this because you just don't know, you know? 
Oh, oh, you know I'm going to be calling you Saturday night or early Sunday morning wanting to know. I, I'm going to tell you right now, if I see that bottle cap move in front of me, I may poo. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, I may poo. You know, and and that's the reality of the situation because in 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 human terms, you don't expect things like that to happen. You know, and if it happens, which he said he's going to do, whether he does it in front of me or whether he does it as part of the tour, I have no idea. It may be when nobody is in the building. And, you know, my team who is helping me, of Carrie, Lana, and Wendy, I have instructed, Carrie will be taking one of the groups, I'll be taking the other group, and then Lana and Wendy will help uh, get them to different areas of the, of the museum. But when we split into groups and we go in there, I have instructed either Wendy or Lana to make sure that they are standing in front of that closet making sure nobody is is breaking the rules. Because you have to respect. You, you just have to respect. So, no. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, why would that scare you or make you poo so much? Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's because, and I've seen some weird stuff. I mean, you guys all know my stories. You know, I don't have... I'm getting sick of repeating them. I, I know I know a few of you absolutely love it. Oh, I love Dave's stories. I love it when Dave breaks out Carl the Alien or whatever. Okay? But seeing something like that happen in regards to the humanization or the, the personal experience right in front of you, it can be a little startling. It could be totally startling. And, you know, I, I just want to make sure. Maybe I'll be calm. Maybe I'll be just like I am right now, feeling good. But you never know. I, I would think you should be feeling good if that happens. Uh, isn't that, wouldn't that be similar to the coins on the nightstand uh, experiment for aliens, and you've done that before, haven't you? Yes, yeah, so my coins have never moved. I'm a little pissed off at that. <laughs> my coins have never moved. But the difference is you're sleeping when that happens. Okay, you're sleeping. This is wide awake right in front of you. Wide True. awake right in front of you. So when it happens, you know, we'll see. Gail has a question here. we got some questions coming up here. Let's get to Gail's first. Gail is asking, "Has someone have someone tie a length of rope around your ankles, Dave, so you can be dragged out of there if you faint? I don't think I'm going to faint, but I do know that when I come out of that building, whether it's, and I, and I strongly believe it's going to be very peaceful, I, I really believe that I have to smudge just to make sure. Right. Well, maybe if he if he does it on the ghost hunt, maybe you can convince him or talk to him and get him to be willing to do something on electronic equipment, whether it be in front of a camera or a digital recorder, some sort of other confirmation. 
maybe you can establish a connection with him and and get him to do something like that. I think this time it's about trust. I really do believe it's about trust this time. And I don't want to break that trust. I really don't. I want to make sure that that everything goes as possible that he knows that that I mean this is a ghost that wanted to kick my ass, okay? It's wanted to kick my ass here for a while. And and I honestly believe that Willie was actually the one that Mrs. SOR a couple of weeks ago saw when she woke up and realized that her hand her arms were being pinned down by a pair of black hands and wrists and that's all she saw. Okay, cuz that happened right before right after the ghost hunt. And and um iron- ironically, you know, she's never had something that negative happen. So this is between him and I clearing the air. I'm not breaking the rules. I'm not asking for more than I've already agreed to. Maybe in the future, I'll ask him and get his response. But we got to build up that trust first. That's for sure. Bob is asking, Dave, why is that a stretch for your imagination since you've already seen Bigfoot and E.T.? <sighs> why? Why? Because when it happens right in front of you, there's always that that holy shite type moment. Okay? It's always that moment that you can't believe it's happening. And damn it, Carl, where are you? Where are you, Carl? Yeah, no one's everybody's a skeptic and no one's a believer until they have the ghost say excuse me in their ear <laughs> i speak from personal experience when that happens all of a sudden you're uh you're no longer a skeptic mm-hmm. bto is asking so this encounter you were looking forward to removing the cap can you ask willie to drink from the bottle but since no devices can you ask him for a disembodiment comment responses willie just wants to be treated like a human because he still thinks he's in human form, but he understands he, he has some sort of supernatural ability. He's tapped into his abilities on the other side. He's let Skeeter know that he is very powerful and knows how to use it. So this is about him and me just kind of hanging out, clearing the air, and I'm going to try and report on it. I, I don't. I'll have to talk to James Tyson to see if he wants to go through with that after the tour. And that way I can call into Spaced Out Weekend and update all of you. But, you know, this is between him and me. There's not going to be any gear. I'm not going to have my phone on the side, okay, or in my pocket with record. I'm not doing it. I'm leaving my phone outside. You know, I'm not trying to show any bravado or, or any trying to be brave or, or holier than anybody else. I just want to clear the air because I love that museum and I want this ghost hunt to continue because we raised some really good money for it. And if Willie is upset, it, it's funny because when we started the tour, when we started the tour, previous to that, the the president of the society for the museum, her name is Uli, Uli actually said to me, she goes, I would really appreciate if you go into the buildings and tell the spirits what is going to be happening. We don't want to upset them. We don't want to catch them off guard. 
and we want them to know that this is to help the museum so that way they can continue to have a home. So I did all that. I did all that, but Willie just seemed not to like the tour. But we seem to be good now. We seem to be good. Willie doesn't like technology either. Do you get the impression that he's sort of a, I, I forgot the, a Luddite as far as, you know, electronic devices or any of that kind of stuff coming on board? You know what? He, he, he has said he will allow the technology in any other part of the post house except the upstairs room and closet where he hangs out. He doesn't want it there. So he is actually given, and he has given us the ability to use our technology in any other room. And like I said before, we're going to make sure that we abide by those rules because I don't want to piss him off anymore, you know. So I'm thinking a couple of Molson Canadians, me, <laughs> Willie, and it's going to be good. It really is. we got some other questions here. Let me get to it here. All right, we asked that one. I thought there was one more here. Oh, the sisters, brand new listeners. Thank you, ladies, for joining on in. BTO, bringing them on over to become new fans of helping us own the night. Dave, could it be Carl trying to communicate with you since we really don't know if ghosts are spir- if they are ghosts or spirits? No. Carl is something totally different. Carl is an alien that showed up at my window April 20th, 2015, while I was broadcasting this show. Scared the living daylights out of me because you don't expect to turn your head over to the window and see a giant gray head with black eyes staring back at you. So we just named Carl, Carl. Carl, according to our Keith Andrews and Elizabeth April, who confirmed it, and Keith and April, or Elizabeth, do not know each other, never heard of each other. They both said the same thing. I wasn't supposed to see Carl. Carl actually got in trouble, and that's why he hasn't come back. He's on, what do you call that in the military, preacher, when you get in trouble? Like uh, administrative uh, disciplinary action? Exactly. On report. (laughs) he, He got some disciplinary action from the crew because he wasn't supposed to be there nor was he supposed to be seen, but his curiosity about the show, I think we were talking Buddha that night, yes we were, got him in a little bit of hot water with his superiors. So Carl, according to Elizabeth April, and I'll ask her this when she's back on the air on July 4th, but according to her, he won't be making a return until coincidentally the end of September, which also has to be paracon weekend let's see if carl shows up because carl and i we got to have a talk we got to have a talk okay well while you're out doing the paracon stuff i'm just going to sit in the studio and stare at the window and just wait because i want to see carl well the the good part about it is during the paracon we're actually not broadcasting in uncle jimbo's cabin we will actually and this is why people need to come to the to the Paracon, September 29th to October 1st, because where we're broadcasting the show those three nights, we will actually be sitting in our own private bar that's hidden in the basement of a restaurant. And we're turning that into 
a temporary Uncle Jimbo's cabin. So while we're broadcasting the show live, we are also going to be able to have some special drinks. We're also going to have appetizers going around. Everybody who is part of the show is going to be there. Everybody who is part of the audience, if you have a VIP pass, you can come watch the show, or maybe you want to take part in one of the ghost hunts, you know, and go or go to the ghost hunt, come back to the bar and take part in the show. That's perfectly fine as well. But it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a loud, ruckus atmosphere. I'm looking forward to it, and we'll see where it goes. So this bar is surrounded by windows because the view is gorgeous. And it would be really cool to see Carl all of a sudden show up at one of those windows. Not a fake Carl. We don't want a fake Carl because I know what Carl looks like. You can't get that image out of your head. When you see something like Carl, you can't get that image out of your head. I don't know. After a few hours in our own private bar, we might be seeing a lot of Carls. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just thinking, Everett. (laughs) Let's get to Joe's question slash statement. If ghosts came into my house and set up a bunch of electronic equipment trying to contact me at their convenience and not mine, I would probably be pretty pissed off. What do you guys think of that? Start with you, Preacher. Yeah, I think it's a, it would be, it's a sign of reciprocal uh, respect. I mean, if you take the resident spirit who thinks that this is still their house, their property, you know, you're intruding on them. And if you come in and start, you're right, it'd be like a stranger walking into your house, not acknowledging your presence and setting up all this equipment. Yeah. It's It's got to be frustrating for them, because I'm sure they're, they're standing right there saying, well, what are you doing? And we're not acknowledging them because we don't hear them. So I think the way to do any kind of investigation like that is with the utmost respect and try to get some kind of dialogue or at least give, like you were saying with the ghost hunts you do, warn the spirits what's going to be happening. Don't just, you know, stampede into their territory and expect them to perform. And I think that's why we, we all preach so much against provoking. If we, if we look at these ghosts as former people and treat them like they had a personality and a life and and emotions and feelings, then to do something like that seems pretty rude. And I think most people, if you're going to be rude to them, they're not going to respond in the way you want. So I, I think, you know, the whole concept of, of anything like that is, is pretty bad, pretty pretty unprofessional. Let's get to Ron Moniak's question. And Ron will be coming to the Paracon. He just bought his VIP tickets, taking advantage of the 10% discount until July 31st at spaceoutradio.com in our store. Ron is saying, has anyone asked the ghost if they want to cross? And how sure how sure are you? No malevolent issues. Now, Skeeter Wellhouse actually... When, in, when she was in communication with Willie, 
Willie actually said, when I'm ready, Skeeter, will you cross me over? Because he's getting tired over on this side, I guess. So, Willie isn't malevolent. He just knows his power. And he has the ability to use his power to make things move, to make people feel sick, to invade people's bodies. He's figured that part out. But he said to, to Skeeter that he is almost ready to cross over. And when he does, he will contact her and she will cross him over. He will disappear. Now at the museum, for the most part, take Willie out of the, out of the equation they're pretty happy spirits over there. They like their homes. And if you ever get the chance to investigate in there, the house, the main house that was moved to that area, the little girl in there, which we believe her name is Emily, who is six or seven years old, is so active. It's unbelievable how active she is. And she will, we've caught her hugging people, we have caught her, I know for a fact, with my own experience with her, she actually held my hand to the stairway. I mean, I'm walking like, and I feel this little childlike cold sensation on my hand after I asked her to hold my hand and take me to the, to the stairwell. I mean, she is so active, and she loves playing with the people who come inside. Not, not deviantly, you know, but she loves just hanging out and chatting and, and trying to be vocal and, and getting to know new people. She absolutely loves it. So I hope all of you get the opportunity to either take the tour one day, come on up here and take the tour, or come up for a reason to, to the Spaced Out Radio Paracon, September 29th to October 1st, and take a part of it. Because we've had a lot of ghost hunters come through, and they will tell you point blank that our museum is one of the most haunted areas that they have been in because there's always activity, always activity. And even when the activity is not very prevalent to the human ear or eye, the photographs are there. So it's very interesting. Has anybody ever left a, a toy at the beginning of the ghost hunt for her to play you know, with and maybe check on it later and to see if it's moved at all you know what uh we actually the first uh the first one that we did glenn and janessa ferguson came up from vancouver and they put a one of those boo buddy bear bears up there now apparently the bear talks when there is movement that goes past its scanner and that bear was talking all night after they moved the the Boo Bear, Lana and Carrie and Wendy actually they went to Walmart and got a a a doll. And we faced the doll, and of course it has its motion sensor on the front, so we faced the doll towards her bedroom. Okay, so that way it couldn't be affected by any of us sitting up there. And all of a sudden, this little dolly starts talking, starts giggling. So yes, she does react to toys. The other thing that that Wendy, Lana, and Carrie did was after the tour was done, they went upstairs, they put the doll down, they brought a nursery rhyme book, and they put the digital voice recorder on the ground. And they've actually got her laughing. They've got meowing from the ghost cat, 
And when they asked if the little girl was ready for bed because we had to go, the little girl actually said no on EVP. So it's very, very interesting to to see where this will go. Yeah, it's things like that that make me question my own skepticism. Yeah. Well, I will take you for a private tour when you get up here. How about that? Am I eligible for that 10% discount? Of course. <laughs> of course you're 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 up for that. Of course. Oh. Yeah, it's sort of like the Paracon we went to where we were expected to buy tickets to see ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Pre- Preacher, how's your holidays going? Were you able to get the holiday thing figured out so you could get up here? Yes. Uh, the news is uh, the previous administration said I couldn't have my time off. My boss just got promoted to lab manager, and she said, no problem. <laughs> so I will be there. Great news. Great news. Excellent. The, the pre- you, you know, today's a day of good news. So, so thank you. That that makes me happy because I know you were stressing out about that. Well, I've got my you know I've got a presentation for Eric Cooper's Paracom the weekend before that I'm you know ninety nine point nine nine percent done with, and I had you know I'd already made all these plans and I was looking forward to you know getting up to Canada and visiting with you and seeing the sights up there. And uh, had the rug jerked out from under me, I was a little upset. Especially since I'm the one that if anybody needs time off, I'll ask Eric to cover for you because, you know, I'm a overtime whore. And if it, if it means time and a half, I'll do it. So, But everything's been taken care of. Uh, it should be official. I should have the email in my inbox when I, get, when I go to work Friday night. That's awesome. That that makes me very happy because you're going to be the MC of our event. Yes, that's going to be that's going to be fun. I'm getting, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, but I find that when I wear the preacher hat, I get I don't know, it's almost like having a separate personality that's more outgoing and I kind of I kind of enjoy the preacher we all have characters. We all have characters, that's for sure. Hey, guys, I got a question for all of us from BTO in the Spreaker chat room. And, Everett, we'll start with you on this one. What is your most positive and negative ghost experience that you've had? I would say that my most negative was probably the very first one I had where I was walking out in the woods with my dad and I just saw this light, this entity that was glowing, step out from behind a tree. It, it, I was about eight years old, and it literally made me pee my pants. Um, now, the most positive is probably, um, probably when my grandfather, who had passed on, visited my wife before we got married. We were engaged. And he woke her up and was making faces at her and and poking at her and laughing. And she had never seen a picture of him. She had never, I had never really talked about him. But when she saw a photo of him at my parents' house on the mantle, 
she knew exactly who it was, and she said that was the the man that was making her laugh in the middle of the night. So that that was probably it wasn't mine directly, but that's probably the mo- the one that affects me the most. And how about you, preacher? I've never, I guess I've never really had a a negative. I guess my first one when I was in my teens, my grandparents owned a lake cottage, and when the for, the previous owner who had basically built the thing from scratch died, he haunted it. But the only part of the house that was still kind of original, because my grandfather was a you know a tinkerer, so of course he they restored the house to their to what they wanted was the attic, which was a very nice room to sleep in, but. You know, I was kind of new to the, this stuff, and I was having a lot of, un, you know, just feeling watched, uh, uncomfortable. One night, uh, I was looking out the window at the lake, and the lights reflected on the surface of the lake, and I felt a hand on my shoulder, thinking it was one of my grandparents coming up to check on me, say goodnight or whatever. I turned over, and there was nobody there. So the next morning, I asked my grandmother if I couldn't sleep where I usually did sleep. There was a converted front porch that I liked. And my grandmother, who was a no-nonsense, no-imagination, one-room schoolhouse teacher, you know, she just did not BS about anything, said, oh, is Bob getting to you? (laughs) So, you know, that sort of, you know, made me realize that there might be something to this. And then, uh, I guess the most alarming, but the clearest one was up in Rhode Island when the ghost said, excuse me, twice, in sort of a Edwardian English, almost like if, you were, if you're watching a Charles Dickens movie, that vernacular, that accent they use for the lower class people in a uh, Dickens story, that I, kind of like a Cockney English, I guess. Just as clear as somebody talking to you, you know, face-to-face. And there was no way for anybody to be where the voice was coming from. That was probably the clearest and most alarming, but I found that to be a very positive in that, okay, now I know there is something beyond this physical existence. That was my epiphany, I guess, or, you know, that was the one that made me a believer. I think the scariest one for me was in my previous home where we had a spirit that was bugging our daughters. And I had a friend come in and do a cleansing, and literally I had I had garlic hanging in five different rooms in my basement because this spirit was trying to... It wasn't trying to possess my daughters. It was just trying to attack. And it was really scaring them. And part of what happened there, what caused all that conflict was when we finished our basement, we took out this sliding door and we sealed the wall and we put a a regular door in there with, with no windows in it. So apparently this spirit used to be able to look through that sliding door and because he could no longer look through that sliding door he was pretty pissed off. And so when he finally got in the house 
he would not leave the daughters alone. And that was pretty eerie because you feel kind of helpless when you have, you know, a a a an eleven year old and a seven year old sleeping in your bed because they're too freaked out to sleep in their own rooms. That that was a little eerie. You know, so we were able to get him out and and it was it was tough. It was very, very tough. And this leads to the second part of that story. And I've actually never shared this story on the air. So as we were working with it, I was working with my friend Pascal, who was helping us clear the energy in the room, because Pascal is an energy healer. And he actually, we were in the one room, and I'm hanging up garlic from the ceiling. And all of a sudden, you know, you get that chill down your back. And I hear the voice of a First Nations man say, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you hanging the garlic? And so I repeated, and Pascal's like, Well, talk to him. So I started talking to him. And I'm like, Well, you know, we have a spirit in the other room, and we're just clearing everything. And he goes, I don't like you here. Why are you here? I said, Well, this is my house. And so we start bartering. And so finally... He says, you don't smoke, do you? And I kind of laughed and I said, sometimes. He goes, do you have any tobacco? So I reached in my pocket. I grabbed a cigarette. I ripped the cigarette up. I put the tobacco along my windowsill. And then he communicated to me, thank you. He goes, don't worry about the guy in the other room bugging the kids. I'll take care of him now. And within a day, everything changed from that conversation. It was the weirdest thing. One of the weirdest things that I've actually, I've actually dealt with. So from a real negative standpoint, it actually had a funny ending to that story. I, I'd actually forgot about that story until you asked the question, BTO. So thank you. I don't even think I shared that with you guys. No, I've never heard that one. No, I think that's the first time you've ever. Yeah, I think that's the first time you've ever brought that up. Exactly, exactly. So that's what happened, and you know, it it was interesting. It was interesting to say the least. But you know what? I got to tell you, and to be honest, as much as we do the ghost hunt, I'm not like preacher who likes his paranormal. I'm not like a lot of you who like the whole ghost thing. I'm all about the aliens and cryptids, man. I don't know. Something that can either fly you off this planet or rip you apart with their their bare hands just really interests me. Really interests me more than, than the ghosts. I can tell you that. Can I ask, why do you think tobacco is such a popular request or item to use as an offering? Well, it goes back to uh, a lot of sacred ceremonies with the First Nations and the Native Americans revolved around tobacco. And it might be that it's just aromatic things in general. Maybe they can't taste it physically, but they can smell it. Hey, if it works, it works. Yeah, that's true. And I also (laughs) believe that tobacco works on Sasquatch as well. That's a piece off. Well, that's kind of what that's kind of what I was referring to. I mean, there's so many different 
whether it be ghosts or different cryptids, it seems that tobacco is the the one thing that is like a universal offering. I get that. And I it's don't. also when you think about the smoke in general, okay, tobacco is an offering, but we burn incense. So arom- burning aromatic offerings is apparently a a constant, and it goes beyond just, you know, it's in Eastern religions, it's in Eastern traditions, you know, it's all, it, it it's pan-cultural, so there must be something to it. Is that a new term, pan-cultural? No, I think, <laughs> well, hmm, I'll look into that. If it's not, it should be. I'll get you guys to well, fill. I- I'll get you guys to fill this in. BTO is asking, "What then has been your most positive and negative experience?" We got about two and a half minutes left, guys, so you guys can fill yourselves in here. Didn't we huh. answer that already? Oh, maybe we did. I maybe don't know. It, I just maybe I think the first time I saw a UFO and that I was absolutely sure that what I was seeing was not a. Airplane, satellite, you know, it wasn't a mundane thing. It was a Oscar God UFO. It was probably the most, I don't know, I think that was positive because I'd always suspected that they existed, but, and I wanted to believe in them, but, you know, actually seeing one, it's like, all right, I'm not delusional. They're re- they really do exist. So for me, that was probably my most positive. Oh, how about you, Everett, outside of the paranormal realm? Outside of the paranormal realm? Yeah, let's I, say out of the out of the ghost realm. Mine would probably be the first time I saw a daytime sighting of what I'm reasonably positive is a UFO. It didn't fit any kind of plane it didn't fit any kind of blimp it was metallic it was reflecting in the sky far away and way too high um that would probably be kind of like eric that would probably be mine i always get freaked out easily i do i get freaked out easily i don't know why but i just do I always get that big startling, and then afterwards I'm like, damn it, I want that to happen again. Like Carl, man. Like Carl. Uh, Just to answer a quick question here from the sisters, have I tried flour on the floor to see footsteps or a light grid on the wall? No, I'm not a paranormal investigator. I just do a tour. And I don't want to put flour on the floor to desecrate the museum or piss anybody off, because knowing me, I'd forget about it, and all the people would come in there and say, what the hell is this? Preacher? Everett, thanks so much for filling in that first hour. I know I kind of dominated the chat there. I apologize, guys. Oh, no problem. You don't have to apologize. Well, I, I do like you guys. I do. You know. You know. We like you too. Well, I appreciate that. Gentlemen, you hold on. I got to wrap this thing up. If you're listening to the Mighty SOR right now, you hear in the background, Little Brother is Watching by Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. Bumblefoot is the official sound of Spaced Out Radio. Rocks us in and out of every single show. Gotta love them. 
you know what you got to do? If you're a fan of Mr. Bumblefoot, message him on Facebook or Twitter. Tell him you heard him on Spaced Out Radio. I don't think we have actually had a fan do that that hasn't gotten a reply back because he loves this show. So if you love his music, let him know. Tell him you heard it on Spaced Out Radio. He loves hearing from you. He will respond back. He's that cool of a guy. Tomorrow night on the program, Bill Hauser is back. We're doing a live ghost box session for three hours. So get your pen and notepad ready because it's going to be an interesting time tomorrow night starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time on the Mighty SOR. I want to thank my team for always coming to the rescue of me when I'm in chaos, but they're always there. Everett Themer, Eric Markham from The Encounter Online. You just heard them with me tonight. Jolene Lammers on web design. Catherine James, social media. Kim Gandy, director of business development. Bob Davis, the golden voice to bring me into this show. Thomas McGowan, sales. Lana Scott, Paradocon coordinator. Love you all. That is our team. And don't forget, you the audience, thank you so much on sharing what we do every night. You're telling your friends, you're sharing it on social media, and that's why together we own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, take us home.